On Veteran Voices, the Oral History Podcast, we feature conversations with those who tell veteran stories in creative and interesting ways. And today on episode 45, we are talking with Devin Gallagher, who is a video and podcast producer in Washington, D.C. Now, Devin recently completed an audio documentary about his grandfather called Sentimental Journey. I remember he used to watch a weekly series reenacting the war. Combat. What was it called? Combat. A Selmer production. Americans, throw down your weapons. Surrender. Sergeant, what are we going to do? You got us boxed in. You have no choice. We were uh, watching a show and these, these soldiers were getting off a boat and they were coming down. The, it was like a rope ladder. The one guy says, the other, don't stop here. They'll give you a ticket. You know, and they, they made a joke. And my dad said, they weren't joking. They were scared to death. This is my dad. His name's Dan, but also known to my son Finian and my niece Liana as Pappy. I sat down with my dad to talk about his dad, my grandfather, Private First Class John Frank Gallagher Sr., and his time spent in the Army during World War II. Devin, welcome to the podcast, and let's talk a little bit about your process of putting together this audio documentary, right? Is that the way to put this? Is it an audio documentary, what you created? Yeah, I guess an audio story, audio documentary. It's more in line with um, kind of a narrative, you know, that, that takes you through, put together with, with extra sound, sound effects, music. I'd call it, yeah, just kind of more produced audio documentary. But yeah, my grandfather through the stories that I heard growing up, lived in Sheridan, grew up in Sheridan, where I grew up for part of my life. The um, Pittsburgh area. Yeah, from the Pittsburgh area. He was uh, Irish Catholic and grew up playing baseball just every day out in the field doing a pickup game, and that was kind of his hobby. And it was kind of working class type of environment and ended up meeting... <laughs> It's funny about doing these stories, you learn so much that you didn't know. I ended up meeting my grandma, his his wife, in a church choir that St. Philip's put on in Crafton. And he was notorious, apparently, for his singing. So he was kind of what people said was like the best natural voice that they'd ever heard. And uh, he used to sing on the radio. KDK had an Irish hour, they called it. It was a radio show where he would sing Irish standards and and other so contemporary songs of the day. So what was interesting about that was they didn't record radio back then. Unfortunately, there's no recording of his voice, but he continued to, um, to sing, and that was a big part of our family. Uh, is putting on, we used to do these Irish shows, um, starting when my, my dad and his brothers and sisters were young. They'd put on these little Irish St. Patrick's Day shows for the neighbors in the house. So it was a big part of their, our life uh, growing up was singing. And so that's, they, you know, they lived their life and he had, they had two kids um, around the time that World War II started. And he was actually one of the first fathers, um, first people and first fathers to be drafted in the war. And he was in his 30s. That was what was really significant, I think, back then. Partly he's, he had his, you know, started his family a little bit later which was, you know, not typical. And then also, you know, st starting in basic training at 32 <laughs> was not typical back then either. Everybody else he was in the regiment with was at his um, level 
uh, as a private was 18, 19 years old. So I bet you they called them pops or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. My goodness. Can you imagine leaving your family for one, being older, going in this, into this environment that is just a young person's game, really, war is, right. and, oh my gosh, what struggles he must have had. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about it is, you know, he was an athlete. I had mentioned that he played baseball. He actually got a scholarship to Villanova to play football. He played football and baseball in, in high school, uh, but he didn't have the grades to really get into college. But he, you know, I think he maintained, he play, you know, he played sports and got into really good shape. He was, you know, six foot, you know, kind of like, I think took to took to basic training really well and really enjoyed it actually because he got into really good shape and let me back up a little bit was your family patriotic you know when the war came on were, did they have this sense of like you know we just have to contribute uh, whichever way we can to the war effort that's a good question i think historically uh in the audio documentary i actually interviewed my cousin who has been in the army for years and is a war history buff and he said that what people don't realize is that people weren't really that interested in getting involved in what they called Europe, Europe's problems, right? And this is, the, you know, the isolationism that uh, America was feeling at that time. But I think there was a sense of duty, regardless, that when your number was called, you had to kind of do what you had to do. But it wasn't, I don't think it was necessarily, you know, coming from a place of patriotism, but duty, I would say. Well, being in Pittsburgh at the time, I mean, Pittsburgh was a major contributor to the war effort. Of course, we know the, the industrial effort. But in terms of just shipping off um, folks from western Pennsylvania, I mean, it, it just really happened in mass to a degree much greater than a lot of other regions and, and cities. So, you know, your grandfather and your family probably watched uh, a lot of people going. And uh, so I asked the question about patriotism is if, if that was just a sense of duty or I'm going to do my part to, and to what degree was there like, yeah, definitely this is um, a good cause, a just cause to be involved with. It's an interesting question. It's a good question. I, yeah, initially I wanted to basically just talk to everybody in my family to see what, you know, what stories they had and what I was interested in maybe having all the different discrepancies within the stories, you know, of everybody, how they remember it differently and how it wasn't necessarily accurate and kind of play off of that. And I started with my dad and my dad's one of those guys that, you know, he's relatively quiet, but when you ask him a question, he'll just go on and tell you these great stories. And you're like, well, no one ever asked me, you know? And so he's just a great character in that way. And he's just a great storyteller. And so I think that was really uh, special. And then I knew I wanted to interview my cousin who's in the military, who, who did a ton of research and, uh, he had gone to the battle site and he had done all this research and hours and hours. And he's just a great voice that can tell the factual side of things and, and fill in a lot of the, the details. And so that was kind of the, the approach that was developed over time that I found that these two voices worked really well together. That's interesting. You know, it, it, typically when oral history is done, correctly, if that's the way to put it, there is a triangulation of stories and events that, that help uh, verify or contradict uh, whatever uh, the person is telling you. You know, often these subjective stories are quite embellished and, you know, they are sometimes inaccurate just for memory issues and, and things like that. So bringing in people with different perspectives and different points of view 
or just different sides of things or who can corroborate and amplify the things is a kind of interesting dynamic to just hearing the one particular story. Right. right. Did, did you find it difficult to sort of uh, take, you know, all these pieces, parts and sort of make a cohesive narrative? I think I did because I was really thinking about the audience when I was making this. And it's really just for my family. But I wanted to create something that was entertaining. If someone just listened to it, they could kind of like get something out of it that didn't know my family. But I was thinking about like my kids' grandkids or my kids' children. And if it's just an interview with my dad that's kind of un relatively uncut, I don't know what, what kind of media they're going to be listening to at that point. But I think it'd be hard for them to really care or know or have any context of what, what all this was about, just listening to it like a long interview. And so I wanted to give them enough context um, that they would know something about World War II that they would learn in school and kind of build off of that, but also leave space and holes in the narrative so that they can explore and find more information um, and be spurred to learn more beyond what was in the audio story. So I think, I think that was my goal, like for something for my son to listen to and learn. And that's kind of, that's kind of the audience anyway, that I was going for. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's very important, you know, to amplify the facts in such a way that uh, they are entertaining and that they leave people thinking, you know, about those, those things. You know, we say in public history world, you know, uh, you can educate, entertain, and inspire. You bang on all three of those cylinders, boy, you really have something there. And, you know, the, the, because we know so much about World War II, at least those of us who are older tend to know more about it. You know, a lot of the facts uh, are, I don't, know, I don't want to say boring, but they're, they're just known, right? And so, you know, a lot of the interviews that I've done with veterans, you tend to get uh, a catalog of facts, a catalog of events, names, places, things like that. You know, things like right out of a history book, right? Mm -hmm. So what's new there? What's interesting there? I don't know, but it's it's um, you know it's not the right way to put it. But I would say uh, it could be rather boring for an audience member, you know, to hear mm. uh, someone tell about you know the, the trek through Europe that one could read in a history book. What that trek was like, what the day to day was like, what people were feeling, you know, th those personal anecdotes of uh, of that experience. I mean, those that's where the gold is, if you ask me, and mm -hmm. oral history work and pulling that out. So that's that's the primary level there. But what you're doing is taking those things and then you're you're doing a secondary level on top of that through the creative work of bringing in the interviews and putting in the sound effects and cutting this in such a way that it on purpose tells a story that grabs your attention. Yeah, and I, I, I've talked about it in terms of just like, the, it's the general story arc that any story would have, but it's also about processing the information and that it goes through a lot of processing and finding what works for the story and, and what, what would be maybe some really interesting in, information that got left out that doesn't serve the story. And so I think that's the challenge, I think, that, that I, sent, I did send it to my family, and I got really good reactions from my family, and that was something that was like the main audience, right? So I was a little concerned about, because I am taking a, you know, we're, we're only providing two perspectives, and I'm not giving a lot of my opinion about things. So I was kind of nervous about how people would react to it, and generally people really enjoyed it. But there were some family members that were saying, well, what about this? And what about, 
well, I think, I think his legacy was this. And, and I said, I think that's true too. You know, I, I, I said, I, I think that you're right. I think that's true too. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't serve the neat little package that I'm creating. <laughs> and you have to sacrifice maybe some other perspectives as well as information that may be really interesting that doesn't fit into this particular story. And I think you hit upon something there that's very important in this work. This is really your story. And the subject is your grandfather, and you have other people in there. So, but this is your story. You decide what information goes in, what to keep out, where the edit points are. Uh, so this is really, you know, it's like uh, photographers say that, you know, what you're really looking at is the photographer. You're looking through the photographer's eye, right? Mm -hmm. So what we're listening to is your story as told by you about the subject. Yeah. And sometimes you have to make decisions and you have to make cuts and people will always say, what about this? <laughs> what about that? Right. Right. That's just the risk that is taken when, whenever we take these, these stories and we craft them into, you know, something that is um, geared towards an audience. And I think that's true. And I think I also, I feel like I did the due diligence of, of multiple cuts, multiple review sessions with at least my dad and my cousin who is, featured in it just to kind of make sure I'm getting these details right um, because the other challenge that exists here is that my grandfather died when I was very young and I never got to have a conversation with him and so he doesn't get to weigh in on this and uh, we do kind of get into how he might have felt in these different moments um, experience of war and the coming back from war and that's challenging because you do want to provide some insight as to what it all meant, but you can't really, you can't really speculate on what he thought about it beyond what, you know, with the quotes that we have that he said, you know, and that's a huge challenge. Did you make those um, assumptions with some bit of a, a trepidation in terms of like, well, I'm just going to go out on a leap of faith here to, to say that my grandfather would have felt like this or not felt like that? I mean, I think I used my dad and my cousin as, um, they're in better positions to make assumptions about how he felt or what he thought, uh, particularly because my, my cousin served multiple tours in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq, I believe. And so, you know, he had the experience of, he says, not comparable to what my grandfather went through. But, you know, there's, some, there's something to be said for having that individual experience, that touch point that I sure don't have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I'm very sensitive to that um, and want to capture it in an accurate light. My dad did have these stories and collected, you know, post-war and, and growing up that even though the cliche is that my grandfather never talked about the war, through other buddies that he had and through other, you know, sources, he did kind of make jokes at least or make light of things. And you can see where, where his, his perspective might have been. Doesn't it um, just make you wish so hard that your grandfather were here, you know, to ask those questions of. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point because I think the challenge in some people taking a leap and doing this and interviewing family or interviewing um, to capture stories can be really challenging because on the other end, sometimes uh, what you thought would be like a great story might actually be painful for someone to, to rehash and go through. And I think I experienced that when trying to learn more about my family in general, is that sometimes the past is painful. <laughs> sometimes just people don't want to talk about it. And I think that 
the reason this story worked and the timing of it was is my my dad didn't go through this either. He was born after the war. He was born in 48, so you know, there were definitely lingering issues, I'm sure, with post-traumatic stress and all these things that my grandfather went through that had an impact on the family, but it wasn't as acute as, you know, being a child when my grandfather came back or anything like that, that I could tell. But still, it is it is painful. My dad gets emotional during these retelling of these stories that he wasn't even around for, um, I think because they, they linger on. Um, and you, you think about the moments in which it happened and, and how they must have felt. It does get really emotional, you know, on that level. Well, that just shows you the power of humanizing these experiences through storytelling. That's extremely powerful. And I, you know, I often think, you know, as I mentioned, there's the catalog of events, right? The standard stuff. But to the degree we can tell the stories on a humanistic level, in your case, you're making conjecture and you're hearing secondhand stories about how your grandfather may have felt or how he reacted to certain things. But even at that, these are just powerful, powerful stories on a deeply human level to the degree that they bring it to tears. Yeah. And I think what was also interesting through the process of making this is that if you know anything about the World War II Battle of the Bulge, my grandfather was kind of at the tip of that in the early, early fighting um, he was really on the front lines of. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I talked to my cousin, Fred Brown, who is the kind of the military expert in the story. And he says, you know, these stories don't really get told because we hear about, you know, Black Hawk Down and we hear about Band of Brothers and, you know, any number of Tom Hanks movies that he's in during World War II. These stories that are kind of very cinematic in the way that they play. And the story of my grandfather kind of getting to the front lines Within a few days, the battle happens. They're green troops. They don't have a decorated war history. They're fresh, and they and end up getting captured. And he's he's kind of saying that this doesn't sell in Hollywood. This, these stories don't they don't get talked about a lot. And so I'm going to tell the story because it's about my grandfather. But what I found was interesting about it was just kind of reconciling that and the isolationism that was apparent. Not necessarily saying my grandfather felt that way, but coming back and f the feeling of disillusionment of what was all that about um, that some of the veterans of, of his regiment did feel that in itself is an interesting story, you know? So that retroactively is what we ended up capturing. That's not really what I set out to do. What did you set out to do? This is a story I heard so many times growing up, these little bits and pieces of it. And it, it always sounded so cinematic in the way that it played out and him, who he was as a 32 year old private and kind of surviving through being in a prison camp, going on the trains uh, into, into enemy territory as they're getting bombed by Americans and just like threading the needle in terms of starvation and really just like feeling like um, I need to know more about these details and I really wanting to see the, a fuller picture of it, a more complete picture rather than just saying like this is like a couple paragraph story that you heard growing up um, and, and that's something that was really rewarding about it is that it's created these connections that i didn't really have with my family i mean i you know my cousin for example we were always close growing up we lost touch and this has been a great way to reconnect with him uh, through making this and to my dad just learning so much that i didn't know all the details and 
there's a whole PDF of all these letters that he had sent. And I had skimmed them before, but really getting into the details of when this happened, when was this sent, what is he saying here? It really just creates this whole narrative that's pretty close to what happened, you know? And it's also creating connections outside of our family. Uh, my, my uncle Johnny, who has been collecting this stuff, has a bunch of pictures sent me. And he sent this letter that was actually, apparently, my grandfather's sergeant that wrote a short history of what happened from his perspective. This like three-page history. And it details out everything that kind of my grandfather went through, but in more detail. And so once you do this story, you find that there's like 10 other stories. <laughs> there's like, oh, I wish I knew that when I was doing this. But you can't put everything in there, right? So it's like the rabbit hole. It's like getting to one level and then you find there's all this other information and Hopefully this is then a touch point to the next generation to, to do that, kind of get a base level of information and story that they can respond to. You know, with digital media, we have a chance to tell these stories in so many different places, so many different platforms, right? So you publish this to Internet Archive, which is a nonprofit project that shares documents and films and recordings of all kinds and uh, you know with the world right it's a place it's a lot it's a digital library to document the world and so you have uh, stories of your grandfather on internet archive and you know so you're open to putting that on youtube and you could even publish this to facebook and just it's so many different places that open up the possibilities for access um, that's one powerful thing with digital media. But as you were talking, it just really occurred to me that, you know, this story just keeps unfolding with all the information that you get, um, that this story can, can also be, it can also live in a dynamic way. Uh, for example, on a website where when you find information, right, new information, you can publish that inf new information so in other words, make a, making a project out of it instead of a set piece, a set media piece, right? It's like audio piece. That could be the the thing that on which lots of information can be hung upon. I don't know if I'm making sense about this, but in today's world, I mean, you're you're I'm, what I'm what I'm getting a sense of. Your grandfather's story can keep unfolding and become more nuanced by the use of digital media. That's a powerful thing, if you ask me. And I think we've never been in this place before in terms of oral history work, um, where it becomes so dynamic like this. Yeah, that's a really good point. And this is something that is also a struggle. If somebody's interested in doing something like this, a project, is that there is, um, not naming any names, but there is some hoarding that happens with these types of pictures, historical documents, letters. And so I think part of the reason I've gotten access to a lot of things within my family is because I've done this project and I keep saying, you share whatever you want. I'm going to collect it all and I'm going to put it somewhere together. And so I'm shaking the tree and things are falling down. And I think that that's true of, um, I live in Hyattsville, Maryland, right outside of DC. And I met a historian one day, just walking around the neighborhood. He's like the local, unofficial local historian of, of Hyattsville. He said he has all these pictures of, of Hyattsville back in the day, you know, all these historical pictures. And I'm like, hey, I can professionally scan some of those and put them on Instagram and Everybody that, you know, locally would love to see that. And he was like, what? <laughs> he was like, looked at me side eye, like, why would I give you these pictures, you know? And my mentality, especially like having done some documentary film that you want to kind of covet and you want to protect your story. But there is something about just kind of putting it all out there and giving it all away and, and saying the more places, the better. Like it's, it's the advice that you gave me. I reached out to you because the first 
hit on uh, interarchive.org after I posted my audio story was your podcast was like the first thing it connected to. And I reached out to you. I was like, how do I get this out here to other people? And that was your advice is use all the channels possible, put it out to all these different places. And I need to reach back out that the Carnegie library was interested in doing a collection as well, especially now, since I have more letters and pictures, I think it could work. And that's another way to kind of officially have it live on. If there is a collection and it's, you know, it's protected. Um, one of the challenges <laughs> I've learned throughout my career with digital media though, is as the formats become different and the way storage works in a way, it's almost harder to maintain digital assets than physical because you can put them in a box in your house and they're going to be there. That's why I think it's really important to put in 10 different ways. And, and in the future in 50 years from now, someone will find one of those channels. So that's kind of the idea. Um, then the recommendation I would make is let it out there, give it to your family or your, whoever's interested in, in hearing the stories. I think there's a mindset here that is very important considering these stories that you could say, oh, this is my family's story. I made this thing. Copyright, right? <laughs> Devin Gallagher, right. Uh, all rights reserved. You could, I mean, you could do that. And I think there are great reasons to do that. I do that in my work, namely to protect it, mm -hmm. right? Because I've seen my stuff ripped off and the derivatives made around the internet you know people think of the internet it's free for the taking <laughs> so being able to protect the integrity of your work is one thing but there is something about saying hey you know this is my family's story but i want to share this with the world this is everybody's history i think that's a, a, a one it's altruistic <laughs> uh, but two i think it, it's a public service to offer up these stories to the world, to future generations, so that they can learn from the experiences of your, not only your grandfather, but your, your entire family and you as the creator of this, you know, they can learn from this experience. And I think that's really important that we do that. I, I did a Creative Commons license on a lot of my early stuff, and I kind of wish I hadn't done that now, back to the idea of just being able to protect. But I don't, I don't regret the intent of doing that. Right, sharing it with the world. and mm -hmm. uh, But I think that's really important. Yeah. Let's talk about your grandfather's experience a little bit. You mentioned, you know, he was the Battle of the Bulge. He was on the tip of the spear there and so forth. Did you learn anything uh, history-wise through your grandfather's story that you didn't know before? Yeah, most definitely. I think the the whole idea of his trek across the Atlantic and onto the front lines was, you know, uncomfortable but it was it was like four weeks or of traveling on a ship and then arriving and just the the nature of how green they were and they were in some cases sharing rifles didn't have a rationing food um didn't have bullets things like that i think in my grandfather's case he did um he was a part of a mortar team through this look at pictures and documentary footage of the 106 infantry division and you know they're just wearing coats they're just like wearing their coats from their house on the front lines it didn't seem very organized right and the the craziest part was that no one thought that germany was actually going to attack they thought they were going to wait until after christmas or when things warmed up or whatever and it was a big surprise and even my cousin says it was a brilliant strategical move <laughs> in terms of strategy because they were caught by such surprise and why would you do it because it's the terrain is so tough to 
drive tanks through and things like that. And the speculation from my, apparently my grandma that Eisenhower knew that the troops were green troops and they were basically protecting the, the more established veteran troops by pulling them back, knowing that it was, they were going to get captured. I mean, that's, that was her speculation about what had happened. But in learning about this, I think, I don't think she was correct. I think it was just a miscalculation about those troops and that kind of bigger story about the war kind of impacting a, on a really personal level. And he wasn't alone. I think the 9,000 troops got, ended up getting captured part of his regiment. Uh, most of them, basically, 15,000 troops that went over with his regiment. So it was a big deal, and the story just kind of continued on for months. I just learned some more details about it through this letter that <laughs> was really fascinating. They, they had uh, milk and they had flour. They had 500 pounds of flour and milk. And when the, they were being surrounded, they apparently just made a bunch of pancakes. And so they made all these pancakes, they had these big pits with grills and they made all these pancakes and they stuffed themselves as much as they could because they knew that they probably was their last meal for a while. And so that just imagining them all making pancakes as the Germans are kind of surrounding them, it, which, which was a smart move because they were on, on foot for a while and then put in boxcars for a few weeks before they got to the German prison camp. <laughs> I wonder if you would ever find that in the history book, making of the pancakes. <laughs> that just goes to show you i mean history is still being written history is still unfolding you know through these personal experiences these yeah. narratives that we get through the oral history work that we do i just find that fascinating your grandfather when he came back did he suffer from post-traumatic stress i think so i think um he was a kind of a quiet guy apparently and there was definitely some trauma that he suffered. And, you know, I think either from the bombing that happened at the prison camp when they were in the, in the shelters with the townsfolk, but also on the trains. Apparently the trains got bombed um, the, on, as, as they were going to the prison camp. And he would jump out of bed and my grandma would have to hold him down because he, if the plane went overhead, he would jump. And... Um, at the beginning, I don't know how, how long that went on for or anything, but I know that there was a lot of support for the veterans coming back and everybody was going out, out of the way to, to help them because the war, he came back just as the war ended, just as, as the West won, uh, at least in the, on the German front or the um, European front. And so there was this celebratory kind of feeling and he, um, he was kind of a local celebrity in a way. You know, you go to the bar and people would cheer and things like that. So there was definitely that. It was different than, say, other wars, more recent wars, that there was this kind of notion that, that he was a hero. And I think, I think that helps, you know, I think that helps the transition and, and getting back into normal life. And, you know, he went on to, to work to provide for his fam large family of eight children. So I think that, that, yeah, there was definitely lingering things within the family. And it's hard to know what what the war contributed to versus like general kind of problems, having a large family and keeping food on the table and things like that. So when you listen to the world war two veterans tell about their after war lives, we can very clearly see in hindsight what they went through. One fella, I was just working on a creative piece uh, from his oral history interview. And he says in this piece, um, 
Every time a car backfired, he hit the f- deck, hit the floor. He was uptight. He was a workaholic. He was an alcoholic. I mean, those are the manifestations. But a lot of that, if you look at it a little more closely, you realize that these guys were just uh, trying to blunt the trauma that they had in their, you know, their heads, you know, through these distractions of working and, and doing other things like that. I think war is very personal. It affects people on a personal level. And the other pieces that I think just going to a place like a war zone and coming back, it would seem to me impossible not to feel disillusioned by it, to come back to this kind of sovereignty and be kind of alone in that. I'm purely speculating, but um, even if you had a good experience, even if you were the hero, it, it feels no one like no one can understand you or you are in a sense alone. And that's what a lot of people, like my cousin said, coming back from World War II felt, even if they were seen as heroes. And I think that a lot of people got involved in the like veterans organizations and social groups and clubs. Um, that I think that probably was the, the thing that helped a lot of people. And there's actually, what's interesting is, <laughs> speaking of getting into the history, I, I, there's a 106 infantry, infantry division association website and they have going back to maybe 1948 or so they have all their meeting minutes and all of the all of the information that they did and i don't know if my grandfather ever joined that group or went to one of their conferences but there was one thing i found in there that was really interesting that you know they were talking about the checkout desk and how there was multiple john gallagher's trying to check in and it was really confusing for the front desk person at the at their conference that they had it's kind of like a social get together thing. And I think that probably is, is, uh, you know, to have a camaraderie and, and I know that, um, at least for my grandfather, he had James Brady, who was his buddy in the war and after, and that was his one, at least one person that he had a really strong connection with, um, throughout his life that he was, what's still funny is, you know, he was 10 years younger than him, <laughs> but, but they had this bond that carried on. And I think that's really important. I think it's fair to say that people like your grandfather and just, you know, millions of others who went off to war uh, then, now, that they do have these lives with bonds with fellow soldiers that only uh, those others know what they went through. I'm a veteran myself, and I know that, you know, I when I talk about some of the uh, guys that I cruised with, uh, no one else can understand that, you know? Right. In some respect, I think, let's let them have that, right? Yeah. Uh, sometimes yeah. I feel like, you know, ask, asking questions and stuff sort of penetrates that, and it's uncomfortable. But are there things that you felt uncomfortable with when you were developing this story? Yeah, definitely. I think... I think my dad just does a really good job of being honest throughout the interview. And he, he said some things that, you know, I was surprised by, but, but I think it, it all had a good intention around it. It's like when you are nervous about asking a question, if you have the right energy or intention behind it to, you know, you're not trying to, I'm not trying to paint my grandfather in a certain light or anything else like that. You know, it's, if it's serves the story, if it's part of the story, I I feel like I can get away with it, is the the point. And I think that there's definitely more material there to get into, but it it doesn't get me to where I need to go in terms of what my goal is to share this story with the next generation. 
this is this is definitely a challenge I had is I'm telling a story about a character that happens to also be my grandfather. So I'm telling this story that is when you talk about the mechanics of a story, you're you're kind of trying to create a character, you're trying to make people like him, but you also then have to put him in these situations and and by nature you're you're editing things out, you're taking out material, putting certain information in on purpose. And so it can be a little fraught to do that. But I think that the overall intention is to share this story so that people have it in the future and, and will actually interact with it. Yeah, I think that um, it's a complicated process. And one of the reasons that I do this podcast is to sort of talk about that process with people who actually do it and think about it and struggle with it as a counterpoint to what we often think about is, uh, you know, here's a veteran story and the camera goes on and they, and they give you this litany of, um, yeah, getting back to the catalog of, of events. And I went to boot camp and I went to here, went to there, and I got out and life carried on. That's two dimensional, but we live three dimensional lives. And these are three dimensional experiences that for those of us who get into the storytelling, it's a bit of a struggle. It's, we have to, we have to think about how to tell these stories other than just, you know, turn a camera on, talk, turn a camera off. There, I mean, there's enough of that. If you, if, for example, you know, the largest veterans oral history project is at the Library of Congress. That is an example of, you know, people just telling their story. It's a sort of a flatline experience, you know? Your story, the work that you do, much more complicated, much more humanistic, much more three-dimensional, much more dynamic, uh, much more involved. At the end of the day, I think it's a much more rewarding experience and a rewarding history that you're presenting the world. Where can people find Sentimental Journey? That's the title of your work. Where can people find it? The way to search for it would be just on archive.org. That's where I'm going to be putting hopefully all the documents into one project, so naming it the same thing. That would be the best way to interact with it and going to be putting it on YouTube and everywhere else. The goal is to hopefully have a shelf life with it. What you're saying really made me think of the filmmaker Ken Burns, you know, who's very well known for for taking 10 years to make a project that then lasts 50 years or 75 years. And I think that that's the difference between say and you know just an inter raw interview that you kind of post of somebody's story and the reason it maybe sits on a shelf and no one really pays attention to it is because it didn't go through that process of being vetted and being produced and and I think that you know, if you just want to share something that's more immediate, that's great. But, you know, to have that longer term engagement, I think it, it requires a lot of time. And I definitely put a lot of time into this project. The world is appreciative, I think, of your efforts. And I'm sure your family certainly is. I appreciate that. Yeah, the, definitely. The, the thing that already got me was, you know, I have little second and third cousins because our family is obviously Irish Catholic. It's like I had 25 first cousins growing up. But, um, you know, some of the young kids like nine and ten and and they've already listened to it and they loved it like some of them are already interested in world war ii and and that it's like already happened you know it's like what i wanted to do already happened so that was really rewarding and, and yeah just speaks to the importance of doing it devin thanks so much for being on the podcast i think the story that you're telling about your grandfather's experience is very important. And as I always say, a story not told is a story not heard. So I want to thank you on behalf of the Veterans Oral History community for telling this story and 
doing it in such a way that entertains, educates, and inspires people to not only learn more about your grandfather, but the experience as a whole of World War II veterans. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. You are in Washington, D.C. Right. I'm originally from Pittsburgh. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Moved down here in 2007, just kind of looking for opportunities with work and actually got a job at a local public access channel in Arlington, Virginia, right outside of D.C. And spent several years there. The FCC opened up the ability to, to start uh, low-power FM radio stations around the country. It was a really small window, and one of the few that got a license was the station that I worked at. They opened up this low-power FM radio station, and I was never inv really involved in you know college radio or anything like that, but I saw people coming out of the woodwork <laughs> to come be a part of this radio station. It opened up kind of a world to me of audio and audio production. I took a deep dive in audio and have for the last five, seven years. So that's kind of where my background is. And I'm, I still do video. I still kind of have that skill, but it's, it's good to kind of have this little special skill in audio that I took a deeper dive with.